Well, if you've been with us at all this summer, we've been making our way through uh, the New Testament letter of 1 John. Uh, 1 John was written by John, the disciple, and then later the apostle um, of the early church. And what makes the letter of 1 John unique in the New Testament is it's what's called a Catholic epistle. And what a Catholic epistle basically means is that it was a letter that was written for the whole church. Like when John wrote 1 John, he didn't have one congregation in mind. He had the entire church in mind. And so scholars and commentators both agree that 1 John was meant to be distributed out among the different New Testament congregations, and then they were to gather together, and the letter was to be read all at once in one sitting. Um, It was kind of what they call a sermon letter. Um, Fun fact, it's actually a pretty good practice when you're reading New Testament letters, if you can, to try and read them in one sitting all the way through. But when you read 1 John or John's Gospel or any of his writings in the New Testament, what you end up seeing is that John has a very distinctive style as a biblical author. Um, And one of the things that makes, you know, a writing of John's distinctly John's is his use of motifs. Um, And if you don't know what a motif is, that's okay. I had to learn too. Um, But a motif is a storytelling device used to ground an audience to the narrative and communicate a specific theme. Simple, right? Um, So motifs can be used in imagery, they can be used in writings, and they can also be used in music. Like, I'm pretty sure we all have heard a music motif before. Like, for instance, if I were to go, da-dun, da-dun, Everybody kind of know what that is, right? Sorry if I gave anybody PTSD. Uh, how about this one? If you didn't recognize that one, what about this one? Right, Imperial March, Darth Vader's theme. Okay, one more. If you didn't recognize those, maybe you'll get this one. Right, so what are those? Those are musical cues or musical motifs that are meant to ground an audience in a narrative and communicate a specific theme. And so, for Jaws, it communicates something terrifying is about to happen. For Darth Vader's theme, it usually means that Darth Vader's about to show up or that maybe somebody connected to the dark side shows up. Pink Panther, it means something silly, whimsical, humorous is about to happen. And so in John's letter to... 1 John to the New Testament church, he uses the motif of light to ground us not in a fictional narrative, but in the real narrative of reality and communicate a specific theme. And so the light motif in 1 John is given to us to communicate this, that Jesus is true light. Anytime we see this in John, whether it's his gospel or in his epistles, John is trying to communicate to us that Jesus is true light. So with that in mind, um, we're going to read from God's Word, 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. It's printed in your bulletin. You can follow along in your Bible. Uh, And we've been doing this this summer, so we're going to keep it on. If you're able, please stand um, for the reading of God's Word. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, 
because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Uh, You may be seated. This is God's word. He gave it to you because he loves you and so that you can know him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, this morning as we look at your word, as we hope to be encouraged by the unpacking of its truths, I pray that it would be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. I pray that my words by the Holy Spirit would be used to convict sin, but also offer the comfort of grace in Jesus Christ. Please help me as I speak, to speak your words, to edify your church. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so what we've just read is John communicating to us that Jesus is true light. And so the way we're going to understand this light motif, the way this passage kind of presents it to us, is in three ways. First, we're going to look at where light originates. Second, we're going to look at where light shines. And then last, we're going to look at where light leads. So that's our outline, that's our structure, if you're a note taker. Where light originates, where light shines, and then finally, where light leads. And so if you look back at verse 7, the first thing that we read is this word, beloved. And that's important because in the the letter of 1 John, John has been calling the people by different names. He's been talking to the church. He says, first, you're my little children. Um, If I were to call any of you little children, you would probably correctly assume that I was being disrespectful. But if next week when I'm at the beach at RYM and there's other youth directors and youth pastors and church people from all around the South, if I were to go up to them and say, hey, the people at Faith Presbyterian Church are really precious to me. Well, then that would kind of communicate more of what John is doing in this letter. You see, John is writing this letter to the church, and he thinks fondly of them. He has compassion for them. He has a tender heart. He's trying to say, I love you, because he wants their joy to be complete. And so now, as we get to this section here in chapter 2, he's about to give the people the commands, the imperatives, the this is what you do as a Christian. And so before he gets there, once again, he reminds them, what I think about you matters. What I think about you actually informs what I tell you. And so, look back at verse 7. What does he say? He says, I am writing you no new commandment, but it's an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Um, So, you know, John, we've said he's kind of a distinctive writer in the New Testament, And so anytime John uses the word word, it usually means two things. First, it means what he said before, or the gospel, or the commandment, or what it means to be a Christian, you know, the word of God. But it also means Jesus. Because think back, if you remember, in the beginning of John's gospel, the first chapter in John's gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he says, God is life itself and the light of mankind. And so John is communicating that this Word which we have heard, it's old. It's from the beginning. And that's really important for two reasons. The first is, John is connecting being a Christian 
to the whole history of God's people. You know, in the New Testament, there was actually this kind of tension where like, oh, the church, you know, the apostles, they're doing something new. They're doing something totally different. And John is saying, no, this is what you have had all the way from the beginning. He's connecting the church and being a Christian to the history of God's people, the whole thing. He's saying Jesus did not come to do something new. Jesus came to fulfill all of the promises of God, to gather together his people and to save sinners. And what that means is anytime the church says, here's what you do, anytime the church gives you a command, it's not something new. It's actually a test you can apply to what's being asked of you as a Christian. Is it the same thing that was being asked of the church of the past? And so John is reminding the people, this is an old commandment that you've had from the very beginning. He's saying there is no chronological snobbery in the church. So we can't say because we are at this point in history, everyone that came behind us did it wrong. He's saying that's not the case. So that's the first reason that it's important that this commandment is old. The second reason that it's important is because as commentators point out, the first audience in this letter, like the church that would be reading 1 John, hearing it read out for the first time, they had slightly different dispositions on things than we did. One of them was, for something to be true, it had to be old. For something to be true in John's day, it couldn't just offer some kind of new utility or novelty or something fancy. No, it had to have ancient heritage. And so John is communicating that this old commandment is true. But then, if you get to verse 8, all of a sudden it seems like he's contradicting himself. He says, at the same time, this is new. This is a new commandment. So what is it? Is it old or is it new? This is where our light motif really helps us understand what John is trying to communicate. Think back a few years ago. I mean, what is this? Maybe five, yeah, five years ago. Do you guys remember when there was the, the total eclipse that happened across the United States? You know, here in Brookhaven, I was here at the time. You kind of went outside and like, eh, it's kind of shady, whatever, no big deal. But in Columbia, South Carolina, where Anna was at the time, they were in a direct path of the eclipse. And so they had total darkness at two o'clock in the afternoon. Like, that's not a normal thing. At two o'clock in the afternoon, when there should be sun shining, when you should be able to see what's going on around you, darkness. This is how the Bible describes sin. You see, the Bible says that God created a world that was perfect, and that was good, and that was full of light, and was visible, and we could see what was going on. But then sin and darkness came into our world. And what was once visible, what was once knowable, is now covered. It's shadow. You see, during that eclipse, for just a second, you had light, and then all of a sudden things started to not be so visible. Colors weren't as vibrant. Maybe you couldn't make out what people's faces looked like. The landscape was harder to see. But then, you know, how long did it last? Five, ten minutes? I don't actually know. should have looked it up. But when this moon began moving away from the sun and light started shining again, everything became visible once again. And so what John is telling us is that this commandment that we had from the beginning, because of sin, there was darkness. There was shadow. It was hard to see what's going on. But now, verse 8 tells us, true light is already shining. What was covering up the light is passing away, and now all of a sudden, we are able to see our world again with redeemed eyes. And what that means is the commandment is new. 
It's new because we can see it again. We can obey it. We can follow it. It's what we've had, but because darkness is passing away and light is shining, there is a new application of the same old commandment. So where does light originate? Well, it originates with God from the very beginning. Because you see, at creation, when God says, let there be light, that's not doing something new. That's actually just an extension of himself out into the universe. And so now, because Jesus has come to us as the light of the world, and true light is already shining, and darkness is beginning to pass away, guess what? Things are getting better, not worse. Like, I want you to think about that for a second. That because we are on this side of the cross, because Jesus has lived his life, sacrificed himself on the cross, went to the grave, resurrected, ascended into heaven, and is shining true light into our world, that right now today is better than yesterday. That the world is actually getting better, not worse. Do you believe that? Think about it this way in a personal sense. Um, if true light is already shining and darkness is being pressed out, that means that my darkness, my sin, is part of what's being pressed out. You see, if we're honest, I think it actually scares us a little bit to see Jesus as true light. Because if Jesus as true light is shining into our life, having a voice into our life, telling us how we should live as Christians, it's scary. We don't want that. It is easier to hide in the darkness, to keep our struggles, our pains, our insecurities, and our fears to ourselves, and say, I don't want Jesus anywhere near that. You know, I think the best character um, that kind of displays this uh, is found in a Flannery O'Connor novel. It's usually all there. Um, but in the novel Wise Blood, there's a character named Hazel Motes, um, and the narrator speaks this of him really early on in the book. And what he ends up saying is, there was a deep black, wordless conviction in him that the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. Darkness can take many forms, but I think for us, perhaps the most common form of our darkness is pretending that we don't need true light. It's pretending that we don't need Jesus to come and push the darkness away from us and save us and heal us. Like, think about this. Do you end up writing off your sins? Do you end up saying that they're not that big a deal? Like, when you get angry, you say, okay, yes, I got angry, but I'm in control. I don't need true light to enter into that darkness. When you sit in judgment over others and say, I can't believe that they made this choice, that they went to that place, that they're talking to that person, and we say, I don't want Jesus to enter into that. I want to keep sitting in judgment. When we're selfish, when we say, I'm going to choose myself over friends, family, and other. I want me to be in charge. And we say, I don't need Jesus to enter into that. I'm okay. And so we make sin something that we can deal with ourselves, and we keep true light from entering into our darkness. We build an armor of self-righteousness so strong that no one can enter into it. We say, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, I'm generous enough, I'm gracious enough, I'm kind enough, I don't need anyone else, I'm okay. And we avoid Jesus because we avoid our sin. Jesus is true light, which means darkness is passing away. Do you know that you need him, that you need true light in your life? 
So that's where light originates. It's with God. It's from the beginning. It's in our world, and it has come to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is already shining. And so if Jesus, as true light, is already shining, then we move to our next point. Where does light shine? Um, so verses 7 and 8 give us, the, uh, give us the source of this command. It tells us it's old, it's from the beginning, it's not new, but it is new. Verses 9 and 10 now give us the substance of the command. Well, what is it all about? And John ends up communicating to us what he's already written in his letter and what he will continue to write on through the rest of this book, that the answer is love. Like, what is this old command? What is this new application? It's love. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus Christ and to be abiding in the light? It is love for fellow Christians. It is love for one another. And so if you look back at verse 10, verse 10 says it. It says, whoever loves his brother is abiding in the light. And we have this little practice when we say, how do we interpret Scripture? How do we know what the Bible is actually telling us? And it's this. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so when we read this in 1 John, that love for brother equals abiding in the light, or love for one another as fellow Christians, what does that sound like? Well, it sounds like Jesus in the Gospel of John when he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's how the New Testament helps us to understand this love command. Well, how does the Old Testament help us to understand this love command? Well, we can also look to Jesus. He's kind of the best interpreter of the Old Testament that we have. And so Jesus gets asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus quotes first from Deuteronomy and then from Leviticus. And he says, the greatest command is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If Jesus is true light and he is already shining, then John is telling us that we are commanded to join him by abiding in that light in loving one another as believers. That the world really does know that our faith is true, that it is genuine, and that it is authenticated when we can love one another as Christians. What that means is for those who are in the darkness, for those who cannot see true light because they do not yet know that they need to confess hope and salvation in Jesus Christ, that when we love one another, it is actually a witness of the greater love of God in this world. That they can't yet see true light. But the world can see us, God's image, God's people, God's representatives on creation. And when we love one another, it is actually showing them who God is and what Jesus is like. So here's the test. Do you love your brother? Do you love one another? Do you have love? Can you love fellow Christians in this church, outside this church, and around the world? Think about it this way. Book of Genesis, Cain and Abel. When Cain rises up and strikes down his brother in anger and murders him, how does God respond? He says, where is your brother? And Cain answers, and he responds out of darkness. 
He says, am I my brother's keeper? That's the darkness. What about the prodigal son? This is literally the story of the gospel, what it means to be loved and to receive grace from God as our Father. In that story, two, two brothers, the younger brother goes off and he squanders his entire inheritance, and he comes home in shame. How does God respond? The father runs out to him, he embraces him, he clothes him, he gives him his rings, and he sets up a celebration of the finest meats. How does the older brother respond? The older brother comes up to the father and he accuses him of not being good. He says, I have done everything you've ever asked of me. I've obeyed every command you've ever given and you wouldn't even kill a goat for me and my friends. That's the darkness. That is not abiding in the light. John is telling us as believers, if we love one another, if we have fellowship and love with other confessing Christians, that is a witness of light to the world. That is abiding in the true light of Jesus and revealing it to the darkness of the world that is passing away. So do you trust that God is at work in another person's life enough to love them even when they don't deserve it? Like, can you look at another believer and say, I can be in fellowship with you and I can love you, even if we don't think the same way about race or politics or money or parenting, that really what we are called to do as believers is to love one another. That's the command. John is telling us that you are beloved. I love you. Jesus, the true light, loves you, and by that we are called to love one another. It's a love that transcends earthly bonds. It's a love that only Christians can show to one another. It's a love that's not based off of what someone looks like, whether or not they think like you, whether or not they offer you anything, but you love them because you have first been loved by the true light. And listen, this love is not some kind of worldly love that's based on romance or passion or position. It is a love that is based on the light of heaven coming into the world to save and redeem sinners. So that's where light shines. Light really does shine into the darkness of this world when Christians love other Christians, when we as a body can love one another and come together and show a witness of the greater love of God. It's a love that gives us enough grace to care for those who aren't like us, to move towards people who can't offer us anything, to move towards those that the world has deemed unlovable. So we've seen where light originates. It's with God. It's from the beginning, and it's come into our world through the completed work of Christ. We've seen how light shines in this world when Christians really do love each other and care for each other and bear one another's burdens. So this is where I want us to end. I want to look at where light leads us. I recently came across this story. Uh, it's in some of the readings I had for a seminary course. Um, and it goes like this. There's a man, his name was Ulrich Wilkins. He was born in 1928 in Hamburg, Germany. Um, and he was a prominent German theologian, um, scholar, and pastor. And he was giving an interview in 2015 to a German Christian magazine and he was kind of sharing what his testimony was, how he became a Christian. And this is what he said. He said, Growing up, there was no prayer in my house. 
My father was a military doctor and was 100% convinced that there was no God. I also believed in nothing. This is what he said. But in January of 1945, shortly before the end of World War II, I was drafted at the age of 16, given six weeks of training, and then shipped out to the war near Munich. It was our job to stop the American 6th Armored Division with only small um, guns and grenade launchers. I was dug in about 100 yards in advance of the front line when I heard the sound of 200 approaching American tanks. I said I was terrified. I said it was the scariest thing I'd ever been through. I was afraid for my life. I knew I was going to die. And in that moment, he pulled out a small New Testament Bible that a schoolgirl friend had given him. And he read this. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He went on to say, I didn't just hear these words. I didn't just read them. They were God speaking to me. He talked to the interviewer and he said, you asked me how someone hears the voice of God. He said, in that moment, in that trench, Jesus Christ spoke to me through his word. Friends, Jesus didn't come into this world to simply reveal and push away the darkness and then tell you, you have to do better. Jesus came into this world as true light to lead us to something better. You see, in verse 11, it says, whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going. And listen, if you're here this morning and you think, I've identified so much more with walking in darkness than abiding in the light. I want you to take hope, and I want you to know that what John is writing is true, that there is complete joy. Because you see, in Matthew's gospel, when he records Jesus going to the cross, he adds this interesting detail, that at noon, in the middle of the day, there was total darkness. And when Jesus is on the cross and he is dying and there's darkness all around him and he cries out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? The answer is so that you and I can be brought into the light. You see, true light is already shining in this world. True light overcomes the darkness. True light overcomes the wounds of this world. True light overcomes our evil, our sin, and is transforming us into our real selves. True life is revealing the beauty and the glory of this world, and it is leading us to something better. True light promises to always be with us. True light promises to bring heaven about on earth. You see, we can say that Jesus is true light. Because all of the darkness of the world, all of your sin, could not keep Jesus in the ground. The gospel tells us that you have far more darkness in your life than you're aware of. But Jesus, as true light, has overcome the world. So you can trust him. You can trust him with your whole life. True light will shine and you can abide in his perfect love because it's enough. It's what you need.
good news. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we are so thankful that your perfect love, that Jesus as our brother, as our Savior, has came into this world and loved us with the love that you have called us to live into. That we can look to him, we can take hold of him, we can trust him with our entire life because his love is enough. And when we love each other out of that great love, the world witnesses your love. And so I pray now in your name that you would encourage us and move us towards repentance and joy in our salvation. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.